0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays.
1: This morning's first reading can be found on page 694 in the Church Bibles. From Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 8 and reading through to chapter 10, verse 4. Page 694 in the Church Bibles. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. All the people will know it. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. But the Lord has strengthened resin's foes against them and has spurred their enemies on. Arameans from the east and Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. Yet, for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. But the people have not returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. So the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm branch and reed in a single day. The elders and prominent men are the head, the prophets who teach lies are the tail. Those who guide this people mislead them, and those who are guided are led astray. Therefore, the Lord will take no pleasure in the young men, nor will he pity the fatherless and widows, for everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks vileness. Yet, for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. Surely, wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze, so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched and the people will be fuel for the fire. No one will spare his brother. On the right they will devour, but still be hungry. On the left they will eat, but not be satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of his own offspring. Manasseh will feed on Ephraim, and Ephraim on Manasseh. Together they will turn against Judah. Yet, for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. Yet, for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. The second reading can be found on page 1128 in the Church Bibles, reading from the Letter to the Romans, chapter 1 and beginning at verse 18, page 1128. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Well, let's uh, remain standing and uh, we'll pray. We do indeed want to praise you, O Lord. Uh, from the bottom of our hearts that you are who you are, that you are the God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, gracious and compassionate. We thank you that we see that gracious compassion in you not um, giving us the full force of your anger as we repent because of the Saviour who stands holding forth his wounded hands scars which ever cry for me once condemned but now set free we pray this morning that we would be even more thrilled and amazed by that death that takes away your wrath and we pray it in Jesus name amen please do sit down <clears throat> well let me uh, add uh, my welcome to that of uh, tim's earlier in the service and uh, Said you're very, very welcome indeed. One of the things you might like to do now would be to uh, dig out the, the handout uh, that was uh, tucked inside your bundle. It uh, says at the top, Transforming a People to Trust. That's the title of the uh, sermon series that we're going through uh, on Sunday mornings, uh, working through these early chapters of Isaiah, uh, chapters uh, 1 to 12. And um, you might particularly find it useful because I put at the beginning, even before we get into the introduction, terms and conditions um, so that as we go through Isaiah, in a moment if there's any words uh, that are unfamiliar if you think who are Samaria you'll say oh that's the capital of Israel it says it all there to help you along the way Adlai Stevenson the 19th century US vice president once said these words you can tell the size of a man by the size of the thing that makes him mad the person who gets angry over little things who flies off the handle at the slightest thing he says by his definition is a small person well, by that definition, and I think it's good, our God is a big person. He doesn't anger easily, as we've just been singing, words straight from the Bible. He is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He doesn't rant and rave at the smallest thing. He doesn't actually rant and rave at all. Uh, but he does get angry, and that's a good thing. We don't want a God who doesn't care about wickedness and evil. He does get angry when... He sees those things going on in the world. But um, he is slow to anger. Now this morning as we turn to Isaiah chapters 9 and 10, we come face to face with the wrath of God. Uh, By God's wrath, well I've put it on there under the introduction, uh, a little uh, explanation of what I mean by that anyway. um, It is his settled, controlled, just and personal hostility to evil. And because we know that God is slow to anger, uh, we can know that the issues in Isaiah chapter 9 and 10 are very serious indeed. And indeed, when we see the parallels between Israel in Isaiah's day and our own nation today, uh, this should make us sit up and listen and realise that we are in a very serious and indeed precarious state at the moment. Before we turn to Isaiah, come with me to the New Testament book of uh, Romans, if you will, the, book that, uh, uh, the, the passage that we had read by David, the second of the two readings. Page 1129 is the reading, is the page number. <clears throat> and the reason we're beginning here is that I think uh, if we get hold of this, it will give us a clear grasp of something that is happening in Isaiah chapters 9 and 10. It will, it will act as something of a backdrop for us before we, we really get into Isaiah 9 and 10 look with me page 1128 look with me if you will at Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 where we read the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness now notice the tense there in those early words God's wrath is being revealed now present tense now in this world at this moment God is revealing his wrath against mankind Now, yes, there is a future judgment to come. Uh, You can read about that in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 16, for example. There is a future judgment, but before that day, that final day of judgment, there is another expression of God's wrath, a present judgment of God upon this world. And we see here what it is that provokes God to be angry now and why his wrath is being revealed now verse 18 God is angry when men and women suppress the truth about God verse 19 since what may be made known about what may be known about God is plain to us to them to men and women because God has made it plain to them what uh, Paul is saying here is that we can see what God is really like and you'll see he goes on to explain in the next verse in verse 20 we can see what God is really like through creation where, look around but we don't want to follow God, not that God. And so, he says, we suppress the truth about God. And verse 23, we exchange, we exchange the truth about God, the, the truth that God has revealed about himself, we exchange the truth about God for something else. We make other things our gods. And verse 25, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Now look, when the world refuses to embrace God's Self revelation is revelation of himself. And when the world makes God out to be something else, or makes something else to be God, then God's wrath is revealed against the world. And here's a crucial expression for us this morning. We see how God expresses his wrath today, well, in a number of ways in this passage, but very particularly, may I point you to an expression that comes three times. It comes in verse. 24, verse 26, and verse 28, you'll see three times we read, God gave them over. In other rather colloquial words, God simply lets us get on with it. In giving us over, or maybe better, handing us over, God, as it were, withdraws his hand of restraint from us and leaves us to our own devices. That's what happens when a society is determined to ignore God's revelation. And do its own thing. God hands them over. It's what a parent sometimes decides to do with a wayward child. You've rebuked them. You've talked to them. You've cried over them. You've done everything you can to bring them to their senses. And in the end, you just have to let them get on with it. It breaks your heart, but you have to let them go. And even as you do it, you know it's a risky strategy because without you there to restrain them, you know they may well make even a bigger mess of their lives. But you do it in the hope that they may come to their senses and amend their ways. You do it so that they'll return to the sort of life they ought to be living. Now that is something of what we read here. God gave them over. And in giving us over, verse 29... Well, we became filled with every kind of wickedness. That is the the present wrath of God. And that is something of what is being described in Isaiah chapters 9 and 10. So uh, turn with me with that backdrop in mind to Isaiah chapter 9 and page uh, 694. Page 694 is the page number, the first of the two readings that David read for us earlier. Now we can see that this section, indeed you may have heard it as it was being read. We can see that this section is all about the wrath of God by looking at the refrain that comes through this section. And the refrain comes first in chapter nine, verse 12. You see it there? "Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. that is raised up, ready to strike." Exactly the same phrase is repeated at the end of uh, verse 17. Uh, verse 21 and chapter 10, verse four. And so that refrain marks out for us four clear sections, each one talking about the judgment of God, the wrath of God being revealed now in the present. So to the first section, and if you're still with me, then we're now over the page on the handout. Uh, The first section, chapter nine, verses eight to 12, and it's what I've called warning rejected. You'll see there from verse eight, that this section is addressed to Israel. By, by this stage in Bible history, the, the 12 tribes of Israel are split. And uh, you can read all about that in 1 Kings chapter 12. So now there are 10 northern tribes, they are called Israel. And the two southern tribes are called Judah in the south. And uh, by, you see verse eight uh, tells us that this is addressing Israel, that the northern tribes, and God has sent a message of warning to them. God warned Israel through Isaiah and all the prophets who came before him. They were warned to make the Lord their God, but they'd rejected him and made an alliance with, remember, Syria. We saw that back in chapter 7. Uh, they decided that they wanted to, as it were, if I may use this phrase, get into bed with Syria. And so they came under God's judgment, rejecting God, saying, I want to go with Syria. And this is crucial to note in verse eight. God's wrath began because the nation rejected God's word to come back to him. So they came under judgment, God's wrath was revealed and it came to them in the form of other nations attacking and destroying them. As you see in verses 11 and 12, verse 12, Arameans from the east, Philistines from the west. But remember this, God's present judgment is brought upon a people to wake them up, to call them back to the Lord. Being destroyed by these other nations should have brought Israel to her senses. She should have humbly returned to the Lord knowing that there's a worse judgment to come even. But end of verse 9, Israel, in her pride and arrogance, thinks she can. Do you see it there, verse 10? Simply rebuild the nation from the rubble. Replant the trees that have been chopped down. More than that, the people of Israel think they can make Israel even better than it was before. Look, verse 10, we'll rebuild with dressed stone. And end of verse 10, we'll replace the fig trees that have been felled with cedars. You see, what's going on then in this first section? God has brought Israel under judgment for rejecting his gracious warning to them. He called them to return, but they wouldn't listen. And so, verse 11, it was the Lord himself who gave strength to their enemies. More than that, it was the Lord himself who spurred their enemies on to attack them, verse 12, and to devour them. But rather than allow that to humble them and to turn them back to the Lord, in pride and arrogant optimism, verse nine, they reckon they could just rebuild the land and make it even better than it was before. How arrogant of Israel to think that being under God's judgment, they could just uh, pick themselves up, dust themselves down and start all over again. David Peterson writes brilliantly on this point. Uh, You'll see i put the, Uh, The quote on the handout, if you want to follow along. We all admire the incredible optimism that enables people to rebuild their lives, to restore their property and to restart their businesses after terrible tragedy, floods, fire, war or disease. But when that optimism is expressed in denial of the warning that God is sending, it is arrogant and foolish. A slippery slide to further disaster and ultimate judgment. In her arrogance, Israel is on that slippery slide. And as I read this, I can't help but see a parallel with with our society today. Now look, before I say what I'm going to say uh, next, uh, please hear this uh, word of caution. I don't know whether what I'm going to say next is actually a mark of God's judgment on our nation, but allow me to use this as an example that we might see how we might be doing exactly what Israel did in Isaiah's day. I think it's pretty evident that as a nation we have rejected the Lord. Since the Protestant Reformation in Britain, this nation has had a faithful Christian witness for 400, 450 years. Now granted not every church in this land has been faithful but there has been a faithful remnant in this land ever since the reformation so for centuries now britain has enjoyed the extraordinary privilege of having the gospel faithfully proclaimed to her how kind of god to have given this nation the privilege of having access to his word for so many years yet britain has rejected that word repeatedly rejected god's word And as a nation, we have wanted other things rather than the Lord. We've wanted to hear things other than his word. Like Israel, Britain has got into bed with the world down through the centuries in various ways. Latterly for Britain, we have made wealth our God. We have believed that money will protect us and save us and give us everything we need. And so could it be, could it be That in these most recent financial struggles, the near collapse of the banking system which led to the most severe recession and to so many struggles for so many people, could it be that this is an outworking of the judgment of God upon our nation? Could it be that these hard times have been brought upon us to show us that wealth is not the place to put our trust to show us that money is a terrible master because it controls our hearts and rules us and promises so much but can never deliver what we really need it can't be trusted could it be that the lord in his kindness has brought upon us this time of judgment to call us as a nation back to himself to warn us that there is worse to come in the final judgment so repent now Since uh, this crisis, this financial crisis, first hit us as a nation, and maybe you've done this as well, I've been praying that people would recognize that money can't save them. I've been praying for a significant returning to the Lord at this time of austerity. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that's not been the response. One or two people uh, from time to time have, have made It's made them sit up, but but there hasn't been a great returning. Indeed, it seems to me we've responded just as Israel did. We've responded in pride and arrogance, believing that we can rebuild. It's what we hear our leaders say. It's what we keep trying to do. We can rebuild the economy. (sighs) Believing that if we just do the right things, we can restore what was there before. Believing that we can become even better than it was before. Now do you see if this is the judgment of God and I know that that's a big if but if it is then the great British spirit to pull ourselves up from our boot, with our bootstraps and well it's not so attractive and impressive after all quite the opposite. It is sheer pride and arrogance to ignore that God has judged us and to believe that we can just rebuild again and better. This crisis should make us humbly return to our God. Now, I can't say for sure whether that's what's happening, but it illustrates how human beings can respond to the present judgment of God with pride and arrogance. That's what Israel did. Yet, verse 12, for all this, God's anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. The point is this, this was not the end of God's wrath. There was more to come. His hand was still upraised. And in the verses that follow, we see why. So from the first point, warning rejected, we come secondly to what I've called wayward leadership. Chapter 9, verses 13 to 17. You see, these sections sort of run on one to the other. You'll see how it works. Verse 13 tells us what we've already considered in the previous section. The Lord brought his judgment upon Israel so that Israel would return to the Lord. But do you see it there in verse 13? They would not return to him or seek him. And now in verses 14 and 15 then, we see that it is the leaders in Israel who are primarily to blame for this lack of returning. Verse 14 is a little obscure, but it is explained by verse 15. So let me read those verses. Verse 14, so the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm, branch and reed in a single day. Who is head and tail? Ah, verse 15, the elders and prominent men are the head. The prophets who teach lies are the tail. So do you see the elders and the prophets are under the judgment of God. There will be verse 14 they will be verse 14 cut off from Israel because they failed to call Israel back to the Lord. Verse sixteen, those who guide this people mislead them, and those who are guided are led astray as a result. you see how it's working? Because the elders and prophets, prophets failed in their duty to call Israel back to the Lord. They led them astray and the people of Israel lived ungodly lives. And therefore, verse 17, the Lord will take no pleasure in the young men, nor will he pity the fatherless and widows, for everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks vileness. What's going on in verse 17 is really quite straightforward. As the Lord looks at all kinds of people across Israelite society, from young men, those who are fit and strong and able to care for themselves, to the fatherless and widows... Are those who are the most vulnerable in society. As the Lord looks at everyone across the spectrum, he sees people who, do you see it there at the end of verse 17, are ungodly and wicked and whose mouths speak vileness. Now, of course, every individual is responsible for their own sin and ungodliness, but the point of this section is the elders are especially culpable for they have failed in their responsibility to teach the people and lead them back to the Lord. Judgment has come, they should have been saying, return to the Lord. Now again, I find myself making a parallel with this nation. There's no need to turn to it now, but in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, we learn that all national leadership is ultimately established by God. And leaders are given leadership in order, as we read in Romans 13, to exercise God's judgment and to call us to live as we should. that's not what our leaders are doing quite the opposite as was helpfully prayed about earlier in the service by by bob we find the government wanting to redefine marriage blurring the gender distinctives that god has put so very clearly in creation and spoken about in his word and so our national leaders completely ignore god's word They pass laws that are contrary to the law of the Lord and harmful to God's people, to God's church. Uh, I love uh, a particular prayer in the uh, old uh, Book of Common Prayer communion service. Uh, In praying for the Queen and her government, uh, the prayer asks this, that they may truly and impartially minister justice to the punishment of wickedness and vice And to the maintenance of thy true religion and virtue. Now the language is old but it's brilliant. Praying that the government uh, would act in ways that maintain thy true religion, Christianity, and virtue, Christian values. What a magnificent prayer to pray. What a great prayer that we ought to be praying more. Praying for the government to pass laws that maintain Christian truth and Christian values. Praying for those who govern this nation, to pass laws that will not hinder the proclamation of the gospel in any way because that's the best thing for this nation and because that is the responsibility of all governments. But we find quite the opposite. Again and again, laws are passed that undermine Christian faith and Christian values. And so national leaders are failing to call us back to the Lord, as are the spiritual leaders. Again, if you try working out why I'm doing this, It's verse 15, the elders and the prophets, the elders, the national leaders and the prophets, the spiritual leaders. So many ministers in the Church of England are, as it says in verse 15, those who teach lies. Just this week I have felt the need to make contact with two people who hold senior posts in the diocese because in their leadership they are denying the uniqueness of Christ. They're also, uh, one of them is teaching things that are contrary to the 39 articles of religion in the Book of Common Prayer. Now, that might not matter much to you, but it should matter to them because they promised to keep the articles. And so the people of this nation are being led astray by national and spiritual leaders of this nation. The very ones who should be calling people back to the Lord are failing horribly in the task. And the result is that wherever the Lord looks, as it says in verse 17, there is ungodly, wicked behaviour in this nation. Now that's what was happening in Israel, and it resulted in the nation coming under the wrath of God, his wrath being revealed against national and spiritual leaders. But there was more in Israel that caused the Lord to be angry. End of verse 17, yet for all this, God's anger is still not turned away. The Lord's hand is still upraised, ready to strike against Israel. And that leads us to the next section, number three, wickedness rife, verses 18 to 21. In verse 18, we see how wickedness in Israel is spread like wildfire. Verse 18, surely wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. Again, you'll see how it leads on from the previous section. It is the consequence of the previous section. As the leaders failed to call people back to follow the Lord, so we saw how the people's lives were ungodly and wicked. End of verse 17. Now we see how wickedness, when not checked by the word of the Lord, spreads like wildfire, verse 18. But as we read on, there's something more as well. Look at verse 19. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched. And the people will be fuel for the fire. Now, look, this is crucial, I think. The language in verse 19 is very similar to the language of verse 18. It's the language of fire spreading uncontrollably in the the language of verse 18. And verse 18 describes how wickedness spreads like wildfire, verse 19 describes the wrath of God spreading and scorching the land. And I want to suggest that those are not two things, but they are one thing from two perspectives. This is Romans chapter 1. As the Lord in his wrath withdraws his restraining hand, so wickedness goes unchecked. That's verse 19. Yeah, the land is being scorched because the Lord is withdrawing his restraining hand. And verse 18, people are just doing whatever they want. Society is becoming more and more wicked. As the Lord's wrath is being revealed, he is letting them get on with it. And then what do you have? Well, dog eat dog. End of verse 19. No one will spare his brother. On the right they will devour but still be hungry. On the left they will eat but not be satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of his own offspring. Manasseh will feed on Ephraim and Ephraim on Manasseh. Together they will turn against Judah. It's a picture of society self-destructing. Ephraim and Manasseh are there in verse 21 were the two largest tribes in Israel. Here they are at each other's throats, feeding on each other and then turning on Judah, verse 21. And again, it is frightening to see how this describes our own society. Is it just me? Is it just me? Or is our society becoming more like this? Think back 40 years, I was 10 40 years ago. And no, we weren't a Christian nation then. The people of Britain were wicked and rejected the Lord, but still there was in this nation a basic decency, good manners, a Christian morality, a desire to look out for the good of others, a, a sense of shame, a, a law abiding, tax paying British civility. Now, it's doggy dog. There's still some people that are aiming for those things, but basically there's a rampant selfishness with little sense of common courtesy. An individualism which sees everyone out for their own rights and little desire to work for the good of society. Wickedness is spreading like wildfire. In just a few years, what we used to call, I think this phrase was unhelpful, but you'll get the point. What we used to call living in sin is now quite normal. The smut and innuendo that we used to be outraged by on the television, and we might at this point, thank God for Mary Whitehouse, the smut and innuendo that we used to be outraged by on the television now looks very tame compared with the coarse language and shamelessly explicit sexual references we hear and watch every day. Sounds like verse 18. Wickedness burning like a fire, consuming briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze. It's just spreading like wildfire. That happens, verse 19, when the wrath of God is being revealed in our world. When God gives us over and we're left to ourselves to freely run out of control without the Lord's gracious restraining hand upon us. It is terrifying to consider. But even then, it's not the end of the story. End of verse 21, still the Lord's hand was upraised against Israel because of the sin in chapters, chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. And that brings us fourthly to woeful justice as a wickedness spread as the lord removes his hand of restraint from a nation so what you eventually end up with is is leaders who not just weren't calling people back to the lord as we saw in the previous section but now they become more sinful by making unjust laws and lining their own pockets at the expense of others You see in verse 1, it is lawmakers, the lawmakers that the Lord speaks against. He speaks against those who pass laws that do not care for the vulnerable in society. They pass laws, that verse 2, deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Now, look, God is for the most vulnerable in society. His law tells us to care for the poor, the alien, the fatherless, the widow. He doesn't show favouritism or accept bribes or pervert justice. Uh, again, I've put some references on the handout uh, to that end. God's law reflects his character. He is for the fatherless and the widow. He wants to protect the marginalised. And so he hates it when those in leadership take advantage of the most needy in society, when they don't legislate to protect the most vulnerable. And so in verses three and four, the Lord tells leaders who have made unjust laws to beware the day of judgment. That is the final day of judgment. A day when they will have nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. A day when riches won't protect them anymore. On that day, leaders, verse four, will crouch amongst the prisoners or fall among the slain. You see, just be like everyone else is what he's saying. Again, I have to ask, are we beginning to see this in Britain? unjust laws laws that deprive the poor of their rights maybe not quite as much as it is here but are we beginning to see it was it right that the in the lead up to the Olympics the homeless around Olympic Park were rounded up off the streets not because of a concern for them but to clean up the streets let's sweep the homeless under the carpet shall we now look at It's not fair to say leaders are not concerned for the poor. There are people who are working for that. Uh, But that's where we might end up. And we certainly are seeing leaders profiting from their positions of privilege. The MP's expenses scandal was outrageous. Israel then was a nation under judgment. Isaiah makes that very plain. And the parallels with Britain seem very obvious to me. Now, we read in the book of Romans that God's wrath is being revealed now against godless and wicked people who suppress the truth. And so it is very clear to me what our nation needs it needs the Lord Jesus. Our nation needs the the promised child that we saw last week Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. To us, a child is given, a son is given. We need him because he is the only one who who has ever lived a life that does not provoke the wrath of God. He is the only one who always obeyed God's law. He is, in a phrase, the only one who has lived a life that is the antithesis of these verses. Not a life of pride and arrogance, but he humbled himself, humbling himself even to death upon a cross. In leadership, he is the only one who never led people astray. He always taught people to return to the Lord, teaching us to live as we should. He he was concerned for the vulnerable, the oppressed, and the marginalized. And because he lived the perfect life, he could be the one to take the judgment of God upon himself. And so on the cross, he cried out the words of God forsakenness. And because he lived the perfect life and died the perfect death, he can promise a perfect new society in the new heavens and the new earth that the book of Isaiah is pointing towards. A new and perfect society that is, as we saw in chapter 9, verse 7, established and upheld by justice and righteousness. And so as we look at the Lord Jesus, we see the one who, in love, out of his great love for you and me and for this nation and for the people of the world came to take upon himself the wrath of God that we might not have to have it. And so we must ask ourselves, is he the one we are trusting in today? And maybe more importantly, we must ask ourselves, what are we doing about that to our nation? He is the one we must take to our nation for our nation to be delivered from the judgment of God now And to be rescued from the even more terrifying final judgment to come. Let's pray together. As we uh, pray, let me ask you to take up your service order, the the buff coloured service order again. We've deliberately left uh, our time of confession uh, to now so that we can respond to God's word. And I'm going to leave a moment of silence for us to think how we individually have failed in the ways that we've been thinking uh, just now, but also for us to think corporately, to identify with the nation, that as we confess our sin in the words here, we'll do it as it were, knowing that we are part of the problem with the nation. So with words that are familiar to some of us, let's uh, allow them to help us to confess our sin to Almighty God together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have broken your holy laws. We have left undone what we ought to have done, And we have done what we ought not to have done. O Lord, have mercy on us pitiful sinners. Spare those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore those who truly repent, as you have promised through Jesus Christ our Lord. And grant, O merciful Father, for his sake, that we may live a godly, righteous, and disciplined life to the praise of your holy name. Amen.